Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. When you put together, you know, Finland in the air and on land and Sweden in the air and on the sea, um, it's quite self-evident why the whole Baltic Sea region is actually quite happy that we're joining. I am quite convinced that eventually Ukraine will win this war. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Frankly Speaking podcast brought to you by Friends of Europe. I'm Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow in the Peace, Security and Defence Programme, and our special guest this week uh, is Alexander Stubb, who is Director Professor at the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence, and uh, was previously uh, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Finance Minister, Europe Minister and Trade Minister, I hope I haven't missed any, um, of Finland. Um, and. Um, uh, so we're going to talk to him a bit about um, uh, developments in Finland, first of all, and then move on to the question of how the European Union uh, in general is, 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 is shaping up uh, as the Ukraine war uh, now goes into uh, uh, winter. Um, so, Alex, if I may ask you first, um, Finland has obviously crossed a Rubicon during this crisis and decided to join NATO uh, along with Sweden. Um, how will this change for Finnish foreign policy and its role in Europe and the world? Finland's traditionally been a bridge builder between East and West. Can it place, still play that role? Uh, no, definitely not. But I would actually argue that this is not a colossal change. I think we stopped playing that sometime at the end of the Cold War, beginning of the post-Cold War era, when we dropped the notion of neutrality, which was pretty much by necessity not free will and we chose our football team so to speak and that football team was Europe the European Union and a very close NATO partnership and I've always said that you know if you're out there on the pitch on one team you can't provide the refereeing for the other so it's not that big of a change I, I think in Germany it was actually a bigger change they've talked about Zeiten Wende which has turned into Zeiten Slalom <laughs> whereas you know in, in, the, in the Finnish case we, we, we sort of just basically took where we left off. Remember, we didn't join NATO in 1995 because we would have probably lost a referendum, um, but we decided to integrate as closely into NATO structures as possible. And that meant that the actual step to full membership was quite easy. And remember right now we have over 80% of the population in favor of it. And the vote in parliament was 188 out of 200. So hands down, we're in there. So as a NATO member, um, assuming that the last obstacles of ratification uh, in, in Hungary and Turkey are removed, um, can Finland largely defend itself? Is it going to need a lot of help from the allies? And what is, what is Finland going to bring in terms of uh, uh, additional security for NATO? Will you, will you expect there to be um, troop deployments of NATO forces or bases uh, in unfinished territory, or is that ruled out? Well, the starting point is that we've always been able to defend ourselves. I mean, there's a reason when you have 1,340 kilometers of border with Russia, you always have to be prepared. And, you know, on one hand, we were idealistic. We wanted to cooperate with Russia, but at the same time, we're realistic and maintained a uh, obligatory military service. What do we bring into NATO? Well, 900,000 men in reserve. 
280,000 that can be mobilized quickly at wartime. We bring uh, 62 F-18s, just bought another 64 F-35s, one of the most sophisticated air-to-land and land-to-air missile systems. So in many ways, I think we're very much a security provider, a value added uh, to NATO in the northeastern corner of Europe. And when you put together, you know, Finland in the air and on land and Sweden in the air and on the sea, um, it's quite self-evident why the whole Baltic Sea region is actually quite happy that we're joining. But, you know, if push comes to shove, uh, we're, of course, able to defend ourselves. And I think we'll basically become a NATO member state without limits. So when you look at our accession agreement, it won't have anything saying that we're not going to deploy troops or we're not going to have nuclear arms on our soil. Uh, I mean, those are the types of you know decisions that you take later on. So consider us to be a very Norway-like NATO member. I think that's the category where I put us. Okay, well, that, that's uh, that's pretty clear, especially since we know that Norway does still have some limitations in, in its northern region as to uh, as to not having NATO uh, troops directly on the border with Russia. Um, well, looking more broadly, how do you see the war in Ukraine playing out as we head into winter? How confident are you that the Europeans, uh, among themselves and uh, within the United States, can maintain? a considerable level of military and financial support for Ukraine if the war drags on well into 2023? Well, first of all, I'm quite confident that it will drag on to uh, the latter part of 2023. So we are in this for the long haul. Secondly, I am quite convinced that eventually Ukraine will win this war. Uh, and thirdly, I'm fairly hopeful that you know European and American support uh, for the war uh, continues. Uh, of course, the, the grunt has been borne by the U.S. in terms of uh, military and also actually financial assistance. But I think the way in which it's going to go eventually is, and I'm simplifying here, that the U.S. pays for the war and Europe pays for reconstruction. Is there war fatigue in the air? Much less than I, I thought there would be. And the reason is very simple. For as long as you know, Vladimir Putin and Russia continues to target civilians, uh, civilian buildings. Um, when we hear reports of uh, mass graves, of uh, raping uh, women and children, uh, the types of war atrocities and war crimes that Russia is providing, it's very difficult to turn your eye, uh, you know, your, your head away. So I, I do think that support will continue. Obviously, with time, it'll be a little bit softer. People start looking at themselves in the mirror. They look at their energy bills. They look at inflation. Um, you know, so I, I think it, it, essentially it's very important that European and U.S. leaders communicate the the price of war um, uh, or basically the price of peace. Uh, you know, we have to pay for this, and it's it's going to mean a lowering our living standards. I know as a former politician, it's not a comfortable narrative to tell your voters, but if you sort of preface that with pictures of what is going on, I think Europeans and all sensible human beings will have enough empathy and sympathy to help out. So I, I very much agree with what you say. I think uh, indeed it's, uh, it's Putin who's keeping us together so much uh, uh, and the way and his conduct of the war and the brutality and the atrocities, as you say. I wonder just whether um, at some stage, uh, having been united in war, we may become more divided over the peace. Um, and you will have inevitably European countries that are 
very much uh, that have different definitions of victory. You say, uh, you, you know, we'll stay united until Ukraine wins the war, but different people see that as meaning different things. Um, and I think, for example, if Ukraine were to launch an offensive uh, to recapture uh, uh, Crimea, uh, that would be quite divisive in Europe uh, between those who would say that's entirely legitimate and it's uh, occupied territory, and so they should, and those who would say this is the way to get us uh, uh, into a nuclear war. What's your feeling about that? Well, nuclear war, I don't believe in. I, I think you know the likelihood of that is very small. Obviously, we'll hear scaremongering about it, and it's good that we discuss the possibility. But I think the alternative cost, even for Putin, there uh, is too high. Uh, he's many things, but he's not suicidal. And I think the messages we've gotten from the American administration that the counterattack would be forceful and swift uh, will be enough to function as a deterrent for that particular option. Obviously, it won't be a, a retaliation with nuclear, but. You know, the Americans and the West haven't even really showed up in the war. The Russians are already now doing bad. Um, now, secondly, yes, uh, there is in Europe uh, a justice camp and a peace camp. The justice camp says this needs to be an overarching victory for Ukraine, which means taking back the occupied territories, including Crimea. And then there's a peace camp who says that, well, you know, the cost of human lives is too high. We'll take peace at, at any cost. I think a good starting point for anyone who believes in the United Nations and in international law and the charters of the OSCE uh, is to say that we start with that as a basis. And of course, if we do that, then we understand that territorial integrity and sovereignty hasn't been respected. Uh, and that means that we should allow Ukraine to push uh, as far back as it can up until the borders of 2014. If that's not the case, then we can as well start talking about you know, dismantling different types of international charters. So, uh, and in my experience, the only thing that Russia or Putin understands is power. So in that sense, you know, to give in in any which way, then we're just going to have uh, a copy paste of a similar situation, which essentially this is, if you look at the war in Georgia 2008, or the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, this time just Putin can get away with it. And it's us in the West that should be thanking Ukraine for it, not the other way around. Um, what do you think the main lessons of this conflict are for the resilience of the European Union and its economic stability? Will the EU, do you think, emerge stronger? You've said that we're all going to emerge poorer, at least uh, in the short run. Um, and will we be less dependent on countries like Russia uh, or China for our en energy and vital commodities? Uh, or uh, are we, uh, is that actually much harder than we, uh, than we may be saying and uh, telling ourselves? No, I mean, I'm sure there are many lessons. I mean, first of all, you know me, I'm a bit of an EU nerd. I've been doing this stuff as a civil servant, academic and politician for the past 30 plus years. I've never seen the European Union more united, nor have I ever seen it more determined or efficient for that matter. I mean, and you can look at it in terms of sequence of crisis. Of course, we're comparing oranges and apples here, but, you know, one can't say that the euro crisis was effective crisis management. It was slow, burdensome and bloody painful. <laughs> I still have the scars to prove it. Um, you know, we can say that Brexit was a useful crisis for uniting the European Union. We can also say that COVID was that and Trump to a certain extent. 
And now the war in Ukraine is sort of the icing on the cake. And it's, it's awful to say, but almost to a certain extent, the blessing in disguise. And the lesson that we learn is that, you know, the more serious the situation, the more united the European Union is. Does this mean that uh, we are going to live in some kind of a European utopia where everyone is agreeing on everything at all times? Of course not. You know, there'll be a time when we'll be split again and, and, and there'll be a time when we have disagreements. Quite often it depends a little bit on the situation. It depends on the political leader uh, and it depends also on the issue. So in finance, it was North versus South. In migration, it was East versus West. Um, on on uh, Brexit, it was everyone versus, versus the UK. And on, uh, on COVID, it was pretty much, hey, we're in this boat together. So, you know, interdependency works inside the European Union. But of course, the lesson that we learned from Russia and our dependence on um, Russian energy is that it didn't work there. So, you know, it's never a given to, to, to think that economic or any other kind of interdependence means automatically eternal peace. In the Russian case, it didn't. Will we manage to uh, detach ourselves from Russian energy? Sure thing. Will this first lead to a dirtier consumption of energy in terms of CO2 emissions? Yes, it will. But in the long run, it will probably, uh, I think, um, uh, make the energy transition, the move towards carbon neutrality and fit for 55 and the Green Deal much, much swifter, actually, than we believe. So in that sense, there's been a lot of good things to come out of this crisis as well from a European perspective. Does it matter that we don't agree about what the solution for energy should be, that with some uh, moving to, you know, lots of renewables with gas as the transition, imported American LNG mostly as the transition uh, uh, fuel and others going uh, more and more nuclear and saying that you know nuclear is really the answer and uh, uh, with a bit of uh, wind and solar to back it up. Does that matter or can we can can, can the EU live with that level of uh, difference and diversity? In the short term, it'll be a little bit painful and it does matter. In the medium term, not so much, and in the long run, not at all. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, we are going to meet at some kind of a compromise point which basically means that perhaps out of this now, uh, since uh, the European Coal and Steel Community in Eurotom in 1952, finally, we start getting some kind of an energy union where there is an agreement, not necessarily on which form of energy we use in a particular area, but at least, uh, you know, the provision thereof. So Finland, I think, is a good case. And I'm not, you know, meaning to tap our my country here on the back because I've been involved in some of the decision making, but take absolutely no credit. We have a very, I think, useful portfolio mix, which takes into consideration both the environment and security. So we have a nuclear power, um, you know, we have uh, renewables, hydro, among others. Um, uh, you know, we, we did have some dependency on Russian gas, but it was 100%, but it was only 5% of our energy portfolio. So we were able to switch on to alternative grids. So I think eventually out of this will come something good. And I, I don't think nuclear can be considered an ideological issue anymore as it was for such a long time. And I hope that we can now start developing uh, nuclear technology, which basically has been at a standstill for ideological reasons for such a long time. So, you know, as long as we keep on diversifying, I'm sure we'll meet uh, at some juncture. So I, I, I sort of agree with you on some of that, but I, I think that we are yet to see the full backlash from our own NIMBYs uh, when yeah. we start to up, uh, you know, more onshore wind, more uh, uh, nuclear power plants and, uh, uh, and different uh, uh, 
uh, or, or to, to drill for mineral resources uh, in our own uh, countries instead of buying them from Russia and China. Um, so I think that, that, that that's one uh, constraint. The other constraint, which uh, we haven't really sort of entirely thought about, I think, is that Germany has to find a whole new industrial and economic model. Um, yeah. it, it is the Europe's biggest economy, and it's the uh, uh, most industrial of our economies. Um, and more than others, I think for Germany, it's going to be a very tough transition um, and a very tough transition that will make yeah. potentially a rather difficult partner because it will be so concerned for its con itself that it won't be too concerned about trampling on others if necessary. I mean, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you know, because Germany has, of course, been the sort of the leading light in terms of economic growth and industrial policy in Europe for a long time. But isn't it interesting to a certain extent that if you look at the coalition government in Germany right now, all three of them had to have had to do fundamental Zeitenwende in their own right. The SPD did it with, uh, with um, security policy, the Greens did it with energy, and the Liberals had to do it with economy. So, you know, in, in many ways, uh, it was a blessing in disguise that the co current coalition was there. But I don't know. Um, Germany will not be as well. I mean, you know, if you come from south of Europe, you're not going to say that, well, Germany was an easy partner to deal with during the financial crisis, whereas me from the north was saying, yeah, they were great. But this is this is sort of the pendulum of power. I, you know, I think a lot more power is going to shift a little bit eastbound, you know, towards Poland because of security reasons, and perhaps northeast as well. Uh, because of Finnish and Swedish NATO membership. But this is, you know, normal movement in international relations. And I must admit that now that I'm an academic, it's much easier to come to terms with it and analyze it a little bit from the outside, if you know what I mean. So you, you, now that you're up there in the helicopter, it doesn't look as bad as <laughs> it does close up. I think I can agree with that. Yeah. But time for one final question. There was a lot of, there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about the goal of European strategic autonomy. Somehow the, this war has sort of stood that slightly on its head because what pe people ran to NATO rather than to the EU uh, for their security. Uh, and does, do, do you think the goal of European strategic autonomy is still important or is it something that, you know, we need to modify and look more in terms of uh, reinforcing NATO and the transatlantic relationship? Well, I guess I'm very Aristotelian in this as well. So nothing in excess except moderation. So the whole idea that we could somehow become strategically autonomous and decouple ourselves from, say, American security, I, I think it's, it's simply ludicrous. I mean, it's, it's, not only, it, it's not even shooting yourself in the foot. It's kind of shooting yourself in the head. And I think we've seen this during, during, during the war in Ukraine. So, uh, you know, if, if strategic autonomy means Danone yogurt, you know, <laughs> then I'm definitely against it. But if it means the idea that we have to understand uh, that, you know, there's a certain pivot of American security towards the Indo-Pacific, we can see that actually in the, in the, in, in the fairly fresh uh, U.S. document on U.S. national security strategy, which came out in October. And, 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 and we have to understand that, you know, America is not going to be here forever. They're going to be here for a long time in various forms because it's in their strategic interest and because we share values. Uh, so that's not going to change overnight. But perhaps some kind of a more European NATO is what we should be really looking at. So, so no sort of duplication of, of systems and, and so on and so forth. So, 
yes to strategic autonomy, but uh, in moderation. Alex Stoke, thank you very much. Uh, that's it for this week's uh, Frankly Speaking podcast. Look forward to, uh, you do hope you'll tune in again next time. Thank you. That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.